Hey, good morning, everyone. And good morning to those of you who are across the street at the video venue and those of you who are joining us online. What a great privilege we have to worship together today. If you've got a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to take it and turn with me to the New Testament book of Hebrews. And when you get to Hebrews, just find chapter 1 and hold that ready. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning, Hebrews chapter 1. What I want to do today is just spend a little bit of time talking to you about Jesus. Several years ago, someone came up with a popular Christmas phrase. They said, Jesus is the reason for the season. I love that. I think that's great. But I also have to tell you this morning that I think it's incomplete because the truth is, and I hope you know that this, Jesus isn't just the reason for the season. He's the reason for everything. Somebody, somebody should say amen with more enthusiasm than that. Yeah. He's the reason for everything. And so it's fitting as we continue to prepare for the Christmas season that we take the time to look at a real special passage in Hebrews chapter 1, in particular verses 1 through 4, because they really help bring the meaning of Christmas home to us because Christmas is all about this incredible miracle of the incarnation, God becoming a man in the person of Jesus, and these verses are about Him. So, Having said that, let's just jump right in. If you've got your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 1, I know you just sat down, but I'm going to ask you to stand again uh, in reverence and respect for God's Word like we always do. We make the public reading of Scripture part of our service. We've got a brief passage this morning. I want you to follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Here we go. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. All right, may God add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of his word. You can be seated. I want you to know this morning that while this is a very brief passage of scripture, it is deep. Everyone say deep. Deep. It is deep in theology. And when I use the word theology, we need to understand that a simple definition for that is just the study of God or the study of the things of God, the study of divine things. That's what we mean when we talk about theology. And so what I'm going to do this morning is my best to take these deep truths about God and share them in a very simple way for you. And I want to share them in a simple way because I want to make sure that not only you understand them, but I want you to remember them so that you can in turn share them with others. And I, I really want to do that for a couple of reasons. First of all, I'm sure this is the final service of the weekend. We started last night. We had a service this morning at 9 o'clock. And, of course, right now we're together here. There's people worshiping across the street at the Student Ministry Center. And we've got people joining us online. Literally, we've got hundreds of people joining us online every week. And I'm sure in the mix of all of those people, there are those who have never put their faith and trust in Christ. I'm sure there are people listening to me right now who have never made the personal decision to trust Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And if that describes you this morning, you need to know. You need to know exactly who He is. 
Now, in addition to that, we need to be able to remember these truths about Jesus so that when we have the opportunity to tell someone else the truth about who he is, we're able to do that. Last week, we kind of kicked off the Christmas season with a message that I called a Christmas to-do list. We did it from Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. We looked together at the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus, and we drew some truths from there. And we said, if this is going to be a memorable Christmas for us, then there are four things that we need to put on our Christmas to-do list. Number one, we need to believe. Number two, we need to obey. Number three, we need to tell. And number four, we need to engage in a sense of wonder this Christmas. A sense of wonder in the miracle that God literally stepped into humanity, that he became a man. If that doesn't cost you to just be awestruck in wonder, I don't know what will, but one of those was to tell. And I said, what we need to do in this Christmas season is we need to tell the story of Jesus to the people that we encounter as we go through life. But I know that's intimidating to a lot of people. I know a lot of people here probably would love to do that, and you know somebody. You might even be thinking about that person right now. You know somebody who needs to hear the truth about Jesus, but you're just not very confident when it comes to literally opening up your mouth and telling them who he is. Well, I'm going to teach you how you can do that this morning in some very simple ways. The bottom line is I don't want anybody to leave our services this weekend with any kind of excuse when it comes to why they've never trusted Christ as Lord of their life, or why they've never told someone else the good news about Jesus, because it's really clear in that brief passage I read this morning. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write down next to number one, this first thing that we need to understand about Jesus, this first thing that we need to know, this first thing that we need to be equipped to tell about Jesus, and that's this. Number one, Jesus is, here it is, the voice of God. He's the voice of God. Look back there in Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1 and the first part of verse 2 with me for a moment. Here's how the Hebrew author began the, his letter. He said, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Now look up here. Without question, the two most important words in what I just read are the words, God spoke. God spoke. God is a speaking and a revealing God. This is the reality of who he is. And in his infinite wisdom, he chose long ago to reveal himself to man. Now, here's the question. How did he do it? How did he reveal himself to man? Well, according to the author of the book of Hebrews, he did it. He began to do it by speaking to our forefathers through the prophets. And what that means, simply spoken, and you can write this in the margin of your Bible there in Hebrews chapter 1, is that God spoke to men through men. That's how it began. That's how he revealed himself. God spoke to men through men. And the Hebrew writer says that he did it at many times and in various ways. Now, the words many times in my NIV Bible literally just come from a single word in the original language of the New Testament. You can see it up there on the screen. It's the Greek word polymeros. And it literally means segments or portions. Here's how we understand that. God did not speak to our forefathers through the prophets in just one single story captured in one single space or one single period of time. It came in segments and portions. He spoke to our forefathers through prophets in segments and portions. How do we know that's true? Well, we know that's true because in our Bible, we have an Old Testament. The Old Testament is made up of 39 different books. Here's what that means. The Old Testament contains for us, literally, contains for us 39 portions or segments of revelation. A revelation of God speaking to our forefathers through the prophets. God spoke. 
The Hebrew writer says that he also spoke in many ways, and that means exactly what it sounds like. It means that he didn't always choose the same way to, to communicate. Sometimes he spoke through visions, sometimes through dreams, sometimes through direct words, sometimes through symbols, sometimes through ceremonies. God spoke sometimes through what we call theophanies. That's not a word you hear very often, theophanies. But a theophany is how God speaks to us through visible, physical things that we understand, and yet it's clear that there's something supernatural about what's happening. A great example that we would probably all be familiar with is that we know that when Moses was in the wilderness, God spoke to him through a burning bush, right? A bush, something that he understood. Fire, flames, something that he understood. But what was the supernatural nature of that? That even though the bush was on fire, it was never consumed. It's clear God is speaking. We call that a theophany. God speaking through something that we understand in a physical, tangible way. He spoke to us in many ways at many times times. That's the reality. God spoke. And as he spoke, this, in the different segments and portions, those things were written down, they were recorded, and they became God's Word. And that's how we got the Old Testament. That's how we got the 39 books of the Old Testament. God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. Well, we go back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, and the first part of verse 2, and we look at it again. He said, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. We just talked about what that means. And then he goes on to say, and here's the key. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his, say it with me, the last word, son. He's spoken to us by his son. In other words, he's spoken to us through Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. That phrase, in these last days, signifies, literally means the time of Christ. In these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. And here's what that means for us. It's real simple. It means Jesus is the voice of God. That's what we have to understand about him. That's what we need to share about him. He's the voice of God. Last weekend in that message, I told you when we talked about how on our Christmas to-do list, we need to engage in a sense of wonder through the Christmas season, I told you that one of the ways that we could do that, one of the ways we could let the reality of the incarnation, God becoming a man, be really significant and meaningful for us is that we could every day from December 1st through December 25th all the way to Christmas Day, we could read the same passages of Scripture over and over again every day. Not different ones each day, the same passages every day. Read it repetitively. And the passages were John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, where John just gives us a description of the incarnation, God becoming a man. The second one was Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, where Paul gives us a, a clear understanding of what happened when God became a man, why God became a man. And then the third one was the familiar Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, that story that we're also familiar with. Well, if you go back to that John passage, John chapter 1 uh, begins like this in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's how it all begins. Now, John is talking about Jesus here by using the word Word. That's why it's capitalized. And you might think, since he's talking about Jesus, that that was a very special or unique word in the Greek language, but it wasn't. It was a very basic, simple word. It was the Greek word logos. And literally translated, it just means communication or speech. And so he's saying Jesus is the communication or the speech of God. What's another way to say that? Jesus is the voice of God. That's how we understand him. Literally, he is the voice of God. And this, again, is the reality of what the Hebrew writer is talking about when he says God spoke, when he describes God as a revealing 
God. Now, having said that, I want you to listen to me really close because I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say next. There are things, and we talked about how we got the Old Testament. God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. Those things were written down. They became the 39 segments or portions of the Old Testament. The New Testament came about as God spoke through his son. And so everything that God spoke through his son Jesus and everything that was spoken about his son Jesus came in segments and portions. Those things were written down, became the 27 books of the New Testament. That's a very simple, basic way to understand how we got our Bible. Having said that, though, there are things in the Old Testament that God said that were specific for his people, the Jews. They were specific for those people at that time for a reason, and the truth is they do not apply to us today. And that's why when we read our Old Testaments, we need to ask ourselves the question, does this apply to me? That's a good way to read the Old Testament. Can I eat shrimp? Yes. That's good. Thank God for that. If my brother dies, do I have to marry his widow? No. Thank God for that. Am I forbidden to work on Saturdays? Can I mix wool and cotton? All these kinds of cultural things that God gave to his people, the Jews, to make them distinct at that period of time. Even though we embrace every single thing the Old Testament has to say because it teaches us about God and it teaches us how to have a right relationship with God in a lot of different ways or how to live for God, we understand that there are parts of it that don't apply to us today. So we read the Old Testament with a filter. But when we get to the New Testament, when we get to the words of Jesus, no filter is necessary. He is the voice of God. And when we read or hear his words, we are reading and hearing the very words of God. And those are words for all people for all time. No filter necessary. Jesus understood that. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 12 and verse 50. He literally came out and said, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. He's the voice of God. That means if you want to know what God is saying to you right now today, then you need to read or listen to the words of Jesus. You know, I sometimes hear people say, you know, I read the Bible, but I just don't get anything out of it. Well, here's my suggestion. If that describes you, if you've ever had that experience, my suggestion is that you go forward focusing on reading the words of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four books that begin the New Testament that tell us the story of Jesus. And before you even read a single word, you ask this question, maybe even say it out loud, God, what are you saying to me today? And then you read. And I can guarantee if you read the Gospels that way, you're going to walk away with a word from God. You're going to walk away thinking, you know what, there's somebody that I need to forgive. You're going to walk away and you're going to think there's a priority in my life that is not right, that I need to get rid of, that I need to change. You're going to walk away saying there's an attitude that I need to develop because that's what God wants me to do. You're going to walk away saying I need to learn how to be more loving or I need to learn how to be more generous or I need to learn how to be more courageous and I could literally go on and on and on. That will happen if you read the Gospels like that because Jesus is the voice of God. He's God speaking to you right now today, even today as you live. You know, it's December, and we're counting down the days to Christmas, but then the New Year happens, and everybody makes, or not everybody, but a lot of people make New Year's resolutions. I would suggest that you make a New Year's resolution that in 2016, you're going to read the Gospels. You're going to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And my suggestion is that your New Year's resolution is not that you just read them one time, that you read them over and over and over again in 2016. This is how you learn the Bible. You read it repetitively. It's not rocket science. That's how it happens. You put all of them together, there are 89 chapters, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters. You can divide that up in a very manageable way every single day of the week, and you can read them. And when you do, you're not just going to learn about Jesus. You're going to hear God speaking to you. Because Jesus, say it with me, is the voice of God. That's the first thing that we need to understand about him. Right down next to number two, the second thing. The second thing is Jesus is the image of God. He's the image of God. We go back to Hebrews chapter 1 for this, but this time we move over to verse 3. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, the Hebrew writer says, The Son, he's talking about Jesus there, notice that it's capitalized. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. I want you to listen to me really close because here's a fundamental truth about Jesus that a lot of people have difficulty understanding. Jesus was a man, but he wasn't just a man. He was literally God in human flesh. That's who he was. And because of that, any question that you might ever have in your life about what God is like can be answered in the person of Jesus because he is the image of God. One day, Jesus was talking with his disciples. You can read about this in John chapter 14. And the disciple named Philip asked him a question or made a statement to him. Rather, he said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And here's how Jesus replied. You can see it on the screen in John chapter 14 and verse 9. Jesus said... Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the, say it with me, Father. How can you say then, show us the Father? This was the reality of Jesus. And this was a reality that wasn't just communicated by Jesus. This was understood by the New Testament writers who continued to write the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul, for example, who wrote more New Testament letters than any other person, he clearly knew this reality about Jesus. If you just go to the book of Colossians, you see in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, he says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. That's who Jesus is. If you go to chapter 2 and verse 9, he says in chapter 2 and verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the Deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus is the image of God. Look back there at verse 3 in Hebrews chapter 1, since that's our passage. The Hebrew writer described Jesus, this reality of Jesus, in two ways. You notice it there? He says, first of all, he says the Son is the radiance of God's glory, and then he goes on to say the exact representation of his being. Let's talk about each one of those statements just for a moment. The word radiance there, when he says the sun is the radiance of God's glory, is a great word in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek language. It's the Greek word apagasma. And literally translated, it means a shining light. You can see it there. Jesus, this is who Jesus is. He's a shining light. He's a light that shines. But if we're going to understand it exactly the way the Hebrew writer intended it, we understand that Jesus is a shining light who shines a light on the reality of who God is. He lights up with his life the reality of who God is. That's what he means. And then he goes on to say that he is the exact representation of his being the exact representation of his being. Now, that's the way it's rendered in my NIV Bible, but the words exact representation, again, come from a single word in the Greek language. It's the word character. It looks like it'd be pronounced character, but it's character. 
And literally translated, it's a word that describes an instrument used for engraving or a stamp, a stamp. And what the Hebrew writer is communicating with that word is that Jesus is literally the perfect personal imprint of God in time and space. He's stamped into reality what God looks like with his life because he is the image of God. When you see Jesus, you see who God really is. Again, I think that's another reason why it is always good for us to spend time reading the Gospels because when we read the Gospels, we read the stories of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, and they show us what the true nature of the God of the universe is really like. People are all the time offering up different opinions about what they think God is like. We don't have to offer up opinions about what we think God is like. We can know exactly what he's like by looking at Jesus because he is the image of God. When I read my Old Testament, and maybe you've experienced this before as well, but when I read my Old Testament, it seems to me that, there is, that, that, that God is revealing himself in the Old Testament in a kind of a progressive way. There's a progressive revelation. Or in other words, God reveals himself one step at a time as his people are able to understand the reality of who he is. And when you read through your Old Testament, especially after Abraham became the father of the Jewish people, you see that as time went by and God revealed himself to the Jewish or the Hebrew people more and more, their understanding of God became more sophisticated. It was a progressive revelation, but that revelation culminates in Christ, in Jesus. And in him, we get to see the full reality of the nature of God because he is the image of God. And there's some really cool things that come from understanding that truth about Jesus. And maybe, you know, most people understand this, but I, I've talked to a lot of people who don't. You know, for example, number one, you can worship Jesus. You can worship Jesus. We don't worship God and then Jesus is some kind of an underling there. You can worship Jesus who is God. He's the image of God. You can pray to Jesus your prayer doesn't have to begin, our dear heavenly Father, or our Father in heaven, or God. You can pray to Jesus. When Carrie Underwood sings, Jesus, take the wheel, that's good theology. Another reason why you should listen to country music. <laughs> he is the image of God. We have, listen to me, we have to understand that truth about Jesus. We have to. And so another New Year's resolution that you might think about making in 2016 is that beginning on January 1st, you might get in the habit of talking to Jesus every day, speaking personally to him every day as if he were physically right there in your presence. Get used to acknowledging his presence and reminding yourself that wherever you are, he is there with you. Just like we say that God is omnipresent, or in other words, that God is at all places at all times. We can say the same thing about Jesus. He's here with us right now because he is the image of God. Write this third thing down. The third thing we need to know, the third thing that we need to be able to share with someone who needs to know is that Jesus is the finished work of God. Jesus is the finished work of God. We go back to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. We just looked at the first part of the verse a moment ago, but let's look at the verse in its entirety. It says, the sun is the radiance, the apagasma of God's glory, and the horakter, the exact representation of his being. He's the image of God. And then he goes on to say, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And then he adds this 
last sentence in verse 3, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, I want everybody to look up here and look right at my face and listen to me close. When the Hebrew writer says, after he provided the purification for sin, he's talking about what Jesus did, not when he was born in a manger, what he did when he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. That's what he's talking about. Be very clear. And it's a very significant statement here. After he did those things, the Bible tells us that he returned to heaven and he was seated at the right hand of God. The Hebrew writer says that he was like this. He was seated at the right hand of the majesty. And it's significant for us to be told that he's seated. The significance is that being seated means that his work is finished. It's complete. It's done. There's nothing left to do. In fact, Hebrews, above pretty much every other New Testament book, makes that absolutely clear. If you have a the willingness to do it, to hold your place in chapter 1 and turn to your right. Let me hear pages turning to the right. Just a handful of pages until you get to Hebrews chapter 10. In my Bible, the chapter heading for Hebrews chapter 10 says, Christ's sacrifice once for all, once for all. And if you scroll down in Hebrews chapter 10 to verses 11 and 12, this is what we read. There's a comparison here between Old Testament priests, human priests, and Jesus who is like a priest. It says this, beginning in verse 11, day after day, every priest, this is a human priest now, stands and performs his religious duty. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So in other words, he says a priest, a human priest works never done. He's always on his feet. He's always working. His work is never done. And then in verse 12, he shifts, and he's talking about Jesus now, and he says, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because the work is done. He's provided the purification for sin. And this is so significant for us because this is what Jesus came into the world to do. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Jesus came into the world to provide purification for sin, and he did that when he died on the cross. Jesus, listen, so many people have Jesus wrong. Jesus didn't come into the world just to teach us how to live good lives. He came into the world primarily to give us life. That's what we have to understand about him. He taught us how to live good lives, but he came first and foremost to give us life. And we needed that because every single one of us, no matter how different we might be, have one thing in common. Not one of us is perfect this morning. Not one of us. We've all made mistakes. We've all stumbled. We've all messed up. We've all fallen short. We've all missed the mark. Every one of us are sinners. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah communicates that truth like this. This is Isaiah 53, 6. He said, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. In the New Testament, the apostle Paul communicated that same truth like this. In Romans 3, 23, he said, for all, everyone say all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's what happened. When Jesus came into the world, he didn't stay a baby in a manger. He grew up and he became a man and he died on a cross and he paid the penalty for sin with his death. He satisfied literally with his physical body, his flesh and blood. He satisfied God's need for justice with regard to your sin and with regard to my sin. And his death was enough to do that, not just for you and me, but for all mankind because he was no ordinary man. He was the very image of God. 
And hands down my favorite description. In all the Bible to describe what Jesus did on the cross was written by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 when he talked about Jesus and said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus was on the cross, every single sin that you or I or anyone else ever committed or ever will commit was laid on him. And with his body, he paid the price for that sin. That's why being right with God is nothing that you and I can ever do on our own because Jesus has already done what needed to be done with his one single solitary life. That's why he's the finished work of God. I remember growing up in church, like so many of you, and we used to sing the hymn, Jesus paid it all, and the chorus was, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow, and he did it with his blood. He did it all. And so being a Christian and living the Christian life isn't like auditioning for a play or interviewing for a job or trying out for a team. Nobody wins a spot in the kingdom of God because of their own effort. Nobody earns a place on their own. Jesus did all the work when he died on the cross. That's why the Christmas story isn't about the birth of Jesus as much as it's about why he was born. That's why last week I told you that if you can't look at the manger and see a cross, you don't understand the meaning of Christmas. It's not about the fact that he was born. It was why. And why he was born was to die. Author Henry Nouwen tells the story of a family that he knew in Paraguay. The father was a doctor, well-known, well-respected, and he spoke out against the local government's injustice and how the local authorities and the military carried out that injustice through unspeakable human rights violations and abuses. And the local police decided they would take revenge on him by arresting his teenage son and literally torturing him to death. It's a true story. When that happened, the town people, townspeople were enraged and they wanted to turn the boy's funeral into this massive protest, but the father, the doctor, had another idea, another way to protest his son's death. And so at the funeral, all the <clears throat> people in town <clears throat> walked by the body of this man, this doctor, displayed just the exact way that he had been found in the jail cell where he had been killed. So they saw the body naked and scarred from electric shocks and cigarette burns and beatings, multiple beatings. And they saw his body not laying in a casket, but on a blood-soaked mattress the one that was from his prison cell, was the strongest protest imaginable because it put that injustice on display in a grotesque and a violent way. And that's exactly what God did through Jesus. That's exactly what happened on the cross. That's why we come to celebrate Christmas and we think about a baby in the manger. <clears throat> we have to think about the beaten and the brutalized and the bleeding body of Christ on the cross because he's the finished work of God. It's not about the fact that he was born. It was why he was born. And he did all the work necessary for you and I to have our sin forgiven and to be right with him. 
He did all the work. The only part that we play is to believe, to trust him. We admit we're sinners. We believe in Jesus. Isn't that the most fundamental message of the most familiar verse in all the Bible? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal or everlasting life. So we admit we're sinners. We believe in Jesus. We surrender in him, to him in faith and trust. We confess that belief and we demonstrate that it's real by, by showing a changed life, not something we're doing to earn what we've received, but to demonstrate the reality of it. We repent of our sins. We obey the commands of the scripture in particular, the command to be baptized, to join together with him in his death and his burial and his resurrection. And if you've never done that, Why would you not do it today? Jesus is the voice of God. He's the image of God and the finished work of God. As I said earlier, he's not just the reason for the season. He's the reason for everything. The Bible makes it clear and history makes it clear that Jesus is the center of all history. The only remaining question this Christmas is, is he the center of your life? If he's not, he can be today. He extends this invitation, this offer at all times. It never ends until the day that he returns. And why wouldn't you accept it today?